Why don't you guys open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Spend a few weeks here. We're almost through this chapter and into the next. Colossians chapter 1. This morning, soon to be afternoon, I'd like to look at uh, verses 21 to 23. Colossians 1 verses 21 to 23. uh, That's where we'll spend our time this morning. And the word of God reads as follows. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I pray with me, Father, as we enter into your word, would you use this time to encourage our hearts and to fix our gaze upon Jesus, the one who is lifted high, the one who is exalted Above all things, the one who lives and reigns and the one who has all authority, your son Jesus, help us fix our lives upon him. For apart from him, we can do nothing. All of our meaning and purpose in life derives from knowing Christ and knowing him in truth. And so even now, as we open your word, help us to know Christ and to know him rightly. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, What is humanity's biggest need? What is the biggest need in all of humanity? I think that's a question that many have asked and many have tried to answer. And in fact, even this morning, if you sat in through Pastor John's sermon, I think in a lot of ways we highlighted... Uh, the search for this answer, the quest that there's been throughout the course of human history to find out this answer, what is our biggest need and how do we solve our greatest need? And many have come up with answers trying to solve this dilemma, the human problem, if there is one. And I think all of us understand that there is one because life isn't always great. Life doesn't always go the way that we want. Oftentimes, we live life disappointed, dissatisfied. Oftentimes, life has a way of throwing us down and putting us down. And we recognize that something isn't right about the way things are. So how do we answer that? Well, I tried to look that up for you in as many ways as possible. And I want to share a few with you. Uh, There are answers that have been given to the question Buddhism would tell you this, the biggest issue that we face is suffering. That's, humans, that's humanity's problem. It's suffering. And what ends up happening is that life goes through this cyclical thing in which uh, constantly you live and die and are reincarnated to come back in a different form than you were before. And so today you might be here as a person and uh, next 
your next life, you might be here as a butterfly or a lizard or a dragon, you know, I don't know. And so you suffer and the only hope to get out of that is you hopefully continuing to do good things to the point that one day you're liberated. One day you're liberated from that entire process because you've finally reached what's called nirvana. You've reached that place where suffering is no more. Hinduism is very much like this. It's very much in the same way, built upon the same premises. We suffer. We have sorrows. And so life is this cyclical nature by which we need liberation. We need to be freed from that suffering in order to feel and express ourselves in a way that is more fully human. That's the human problem. Suffering. Until we're finally liberated. And can finally be who we truly are. That's Hinduism's answer to that. Islam might sound a little bit more common to you. Islam would say that the issue is that we do bad things. And they might even call it sin. Sinfulness is the problem. And the answer for us in Islam is to do less bad things and to do more good things. If you can do more good things, you have a better chance of God saving you in the end. And Muslim friends, you might have have them, you might speak with them, they'll tell you their God is merciful. And that's what they believe. And their God does present himself to be merciful, even in their version of scripture. However, their God is merciful to a point. And merciful only in a way that he knows and no one else knows. The, the Muslim way is this, you're sinful, you need to do more good than bad, and then when you finally meet Allah, the God of Islam, he might let you in. You have no idea in this life if you'll get into heaven or not, if you'll get into paradise or not, not if you're in Islam. Now, people have struggled with these religious ideas for so long that I think today you recognize the world has gotten increasingly, let's put it this way, decreasingly religious and increasingly selfish. People have gotten so tired of trying to find God and get to God and access God and understand our problem and understand his solution that in many ways they've given up on God completely. And so what we have today is something that began with a man named Rene Descartes who posited this for us. I think, therefore, I am. People have gotten tired of religion's answers and so they've looked into themselves. Truth derives in me. Reality derives by what I want it to be. What is real and what is true is Given up to God, yes, but God is me. Is that not the world we live in now? You get to be whatever you want to be. You get to identify however you desire to identify. You get to go and live and move and breathe and exist in whatever way you see fit for yourself. Self-realization. Freedom to express yourself however you desire, that is the world's answer to our biggest problem. And I'll ask you this, has it worked? Has it proven in any way to be helpful? Uh, If you're 
eyes are open to it, I think you would see that the more we've gone down the path of self-realization and self-fulfillment, the more chaotic and disastrous the world has gotten. So evidently, that's not the answer. So what is it? The only answer is found for us in the truth of God's word. And the reality for us is that if we are going to understand our greatest need, then we have to understand the God who made us. If we're going to understand what we need, we're going to understand how it is that God has made us and how God is working in us through his son. There isn't some kind of different reality out there. There isn't other people's truth and then our truth. There isn't this way and our way. No, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you're looking for the way, if you're looking for truth, and if you're looking for life, it's only found in Jesus. The Jesus we saw last Sunday, it might frighten you. The Jesus we saw last Sunday is this, the image of the invisible God. The one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth. The one who is... Uh, over thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, all things created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is a high and lofty Jesus. He is nothing like us. He's a Jesus to, in many ways, we might fear because of just how great he is. But we need a Jesus like that. Understanding Jesus in that way highlights for us what our need is. It's not only to recognize his supremacy. It's not only to recognize how great he is. But it's also that in that we see ourselves for who we are. And we recognize the greatness of his plan in redeeming us. In seeing Jesus the way that we already have in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, what we see is that the Jesus we need relationship, we don't, relationship with, we don't have that. We've broken that off. In fact, that's where Paul leads in verse 21. We're alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. We need reconciliation. We need for our relationship with the Jesus who is so great, who is so high, who is so lofty. We need relationship with him to be possible. And Paul wants to make this very clear for you. Paul wants you to understand the condition of your soul, the need that you have, and the answer that God provides. He doesn't want you to be confused about this. While there's a million answers out in the world over what your problem is and how you can fix it, there is but one solution that's been sent to us from heaven. And it's this. The Jesus who is supreme. The Jesus who is all-powerful. The Jesus who is to be feared and worshipped is the same one who became like us so that we might be right with God. That's who he is. 
in every other religion where there's this struggle to try to be good enough and this struggle to try to access God, this struggle to try to be a better you or be the best you, God's answer is not that. God's answer is to send his son to make you what you could never make yourself. Our test, our Takeaway this morning, our main idea is this. The testimony of every Christian's life. We're going to see that in these verses, verses 21 to 23. We're going to see the testimony of every Christian's life so that we would fix our hope on the true and only Jesus. We're going to behold in these short verses here just a true picture of what every Christian life looks like. Your story is this story. If you say that you know Jesus, this is your story, and it's to remind you that your faith is to be in Christ alone. This is laid out for us so that if we began the race with Jesus, we would finish it by his strength. This is here for us to remind us our testimony isn't even primarily about us in so far as it's about him. That's what we're going to see. We're going to see it in three key ways. One, verse 21, we'll look at the Christian's past. The Christian's past. Second, we'll look at the Christian's present in verse 23. And we'll close in verse 23 with the Christian's future. The Christian's future. Let's begin in verse 1. We have a huge problem, and God has given us the only solution. And those who love Jesus should never forget where it is that they came from. It is like God who speaks to Israel over and over, remember Egypt. And so too you remember where you came from. Paul begins in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is where all of us have come from. Anyone who's here and is a Christian, that's the testimony that you bear. You were in this position, one of alienation and hostility toward God in your mind and also committing acts of treason against him by doing the things that you know ought not to be done. Three ways that define our past. One is this alienation. Now notice this is past. And so if this is your present form of life, then you don't know Christ. If you live in a way that is alienated to God and hostile to God and evil before God, you don't know God. This is who you once were. And who you once were is first alienated. Now, some would take that to mean stranger, but I think it goes a little bit further than that. It's not that you were a stranger, it's that you were estranged. It's a difference. It's the word stranger with an E at front. And it has nothing to do with the internet. It has everything to do with your relationship. It isn't just that you were a stranger to God. It is that you have severed your relationship with God. We recognize this. We've seen this. Some of you have seen this in your very own home. Broken marriages are a product of estrangement. 
where relationship has been disregarded. And so now there is friction, tension, and distance between two parties. You have seen it in friendships where one brother hates another and now there is a tension and a distance that is developed between people who once loved each other. Friends, this is who we were, created in the image of God, to be in perfect union with God. But all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And now we are alienated. Those apart from Christ are estranged from him. Ephesians 4.18 makes it clearer for us in this way. That we are those who live in that way, those who bear that now, and those whose past that was. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Alienated, estranged, distant, Not simply because there's a chasm between us and God, but because we no longer love God more than we love ourselves. And second, he talks to us here of not only being alienated, but also hostile in mind. Not only have we developed a friction and a distance between us and God, we have also grown in a way in which our minds no longer desire him. In fact, they go against him. Everything God says, everything God wants, everything God desires for us, we do not desire. We think we know better than God. God tells us what his wisdom is. God tells us the right way to live. God tells us what way in life would lead to blessing. And we choose the opposite. And it's not only because we think we're smarter. It's because in our hearts, before Christ, we hate God. We despise God. We refuse God. And this from the very beginning of our lives. You know that Psalm 58.3 says this, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. That's a mind that is against God. And no one did that to you. That's who you are. That's the reality of our condition. Our biggest problem isn't that we're sufferers. Our biggest problem is that we do not love God and our minds are against God. And the natural progression of this is clear to us. What you love shows up in the way that you think and in the things that you do. And so someone who's alienated from God not only thinks in a way that hates God, but also lives in a way that shows hatred of God. You were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Does that remind you of a passage we've been in before? Maybe James chapter 1. In James 1, we read, each person, verse 14, is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's fully, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And such were all of us. Those who are Christians, those who've given their life to God, those who have believed upon Jesus, this is their 
past. But this is an opportunity in this room for you to assess yourself in the present. This is supposed to be what we were, but I wonder if for some of you, this is who you are. You are distant from God because you have no love for God. Your mind is sent against God, committing all kinds of things that are not in line with the truth of God and the blessing of God because you love yourself, because you don't find his answer to be sufficient, because you think you know better than he does, because you think you know better than God's word, because you think that the world and the universe centers around you and not around what God has told us, that the world centers around his son. Friends, if this is you, I want you to know there is hope. There is hope for you. That though you've been alienated from God because of your sin, though your mind is against God because of your sin, though you do things against God because of your sin, there is hope. This is the Christian's past. Secondly, let's look at the Christian's present. And hope for all of us is found here. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What's offered to you is reconciliation. And I know that's a big word and you're wondering what that might mean and that's why I'm standing here. Reconciliation is a huge word and it's not the same as justification or redemption. It's a word that stands on its own. And what it means is not only do we have in Christ redemption where we've been purchased out of our sin and into the kingdom of his son. Not only do we have justification, which means that before God right now, all those who believe in Jesus are counted as righteous. You're viewed in the eyes of God right now when you believe in Jesus. God sees you as he sees his son. And these are glorious truths, but this is not reconciliation. What God has done for us in Jesus is he's restored the relationship. What God has done for us in Christ is he's taken the relationship we could not bring back together and he's done it himself. You know, when we play at home, my kids are putting together train sets all the time. At least the two boys are and they do their best and sometimes it's a little bit out of order and sometimes that piece of the train always comes off that they can never get on. And they start bickering and fighting over who did what and all it takes is Ezra for a quick second as the oldest brother who knows what he's doing just to fix it. And in that moment, him and Nemo are best buds again. Nemo found Ezra in love with him for the next five minutes and and their relationship built on and predicated on the fact that one of them has chosen to make it right, to fix the problem. That's kind of what we're seeing here. Reconciliation is when someone steps in to fix the problem that broke the relationship. That's what God has done for us. And we couldn't fix it. Not only because we're alienated, not only because we're hostile in mind, not only even because we do bad things. 
but because all the good things we do don't measure up to who God is. Nothing we could do would reconcile us before God. But Ephesians 2, words that we love, say, but God, being rich in mercy, saved us. And here, I think, is a very similar tone. I don't know that your Bible says it that way, but I wish it did. Verse 22, mine in the ESV says, he has now reconciled. It should say, but now he has reconciled. It's as glorious as Ephesians 2. It's not just that God stepped in to fix it. It's that God fixed it in this time. It's done with. You don't have to wait to be saved someday. What God has done is available to you now. A right relationship with God isn't just for people who go to heaven. It's for people who live on earth. You can be right with God today. But now... He has reconciled us. And the question is, how? How did God do that? And why would God do that? That's absurd. That the God of the universe, who is sinless, perfect, holy, who is, has every right to judge us. Listen, the wrath of God is absolutely what we deserve. God has no reason to save us except for the fact That God is merciful, loving, kind, forbearing, patient. And that all of those things are wrapped up in the person and work of Christ. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Remember we talked about Jesus as being above all things, before all things. He holds all things together. That makes him God. Reconciliation is the reminder to us that Jesus was also man. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was a man. He came for us. He came to us. He came like us in order to reconcile us with God. He was born just like you were born. He grew up just like you're growing up. He had skin and red blood cells and white blood cells just like you have. He had organs just like you have. Immune system, nervous system, all the systems just like you have. He was a man. But unlike any other, verse 19 reminds us, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, is the only answer to our greatest problem. Our alienation from God our distance from God, our rejection of God could only be met by a man like us who lived fully obedient towards the will of God. And that's who we have in Jesus. And not only one who would live, but one who would die. 
and one who would die for us and take the place of our punishment so that we could be right with him. Something that nothing in the history of mankind could ever do. The nation of Israel, right? What did they have to do? They had to sacrifice over and over and over again. Animal after animal after animal. Sadness because we all think that donkeys are not to be sacrificed, but that goats are kind of cute. Then you have to kill one in order to atone for your sin. It's even laid out for them in Leviticus 17, 11, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it's in blood that atonement is made. Blood is the requirement for atonement. Animal after animal after animal would never suffice. We needed something like us. You don't fix human problems with chickens or cows or pigs or pigeons or rats or snakes. You need someone like us to fix this great problem. And it's what the author of Hebrews says and reminds us we do have. He says in 10.4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so instead, Hebrews 10.10 tells us, That we've been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's what we have in Jesus. One like us. Who took on the death that we deserved. So that we might be right with a God we had no right to be right with. Do you get that? Do you understand that? You don't deserve to be right with God. You didn't do anything to earn favor from God. You didn't do anything in God's sight that would say, you know what? I should be happy with them. You know what? I should give them eternal life. You know what? I should forgive them. You you know what? They earned it. You have done nothing of the sort. So God sent Jesus to take your place in every single way imaginable. The supreme ruler over all things, the image of the invisible God made into the image of man so that through him he might be the mediator between God and man. If you're looking for any other way, I promise you, you'll never find it. The only means to eternal life, the only way that your heart and your soul will find peace Joy, satisfaction, through forgiveness of your sins is through his son, Jesus. In him, aliens are made citizens. In in him, those who have been hostile in mind are given the mind of Christ. In him, those who were committed to the deeds of the flesh now walk in the fruit of of the spirit this has been given to you in jesus and you can see it for yourself in your life in three key ways that paul tells us here this is your present it's that you've been forgiven it's that you've been redeemed it's that jesus who is god and who is man gave his life for you so that what in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
It's so that now when you stand before God, you don't look like you once did. You're new. Behold, the old has passed away. The new has come. That's true of your life. And I want you to notice in this verse here, verse 22, he's not talking about simply when one day you get to heaven. He's talking about in this present moment what Christ is working in you. If you're waiting for the day to be holy and blameless and above reproach, you are missing out on what Jesus is trying to do in you. You aren't understanding what it is that Christ is trying to work out in you. The realities that are coming for us are true for us now. And so in these three ways, you can understand God's present work in your life. Number one, you're being made holy. You know what that word means. You're being set apart. There's distinction happening. And your life is no longer one that is being marked by sin, but now it's being marked by righteousness. You're holy. You don't look like the world. You don't talk like the world. You don't think like the world. Some of you are so entertained by the world. You're so entertained by the very things that were leading you down a path to destruction. Begs the question, do you understand what Christ is trying to do in you? He desires to and he will make you holy. He is setting you apart. Second, he's making you blameless. What a word, it's awesome. It means without blemish. It's, you know, what happens to your shirt after you've had too much spaghetti and you, you know, you eat like an animal like I do. So your shirt gets dirty and you don't wear a bib. You're grown now. What in the world? Napkin? I don't need a napkin. I'm not putting that in there. What am I, three? No, no, no. Get that spaghetti sauce all over me. We can wash it. And it should come off. If it doesn't, we need, we need to talk about what you're doing. What's the process here? But you're hoping to get something clean without blemish. That's what's happened in your life. The stain of sin, gone, removed. You've been purified. You've been cleansed. Thirdly, above reproach. In Christ, right now, you have been set apart to be holy. You have been purified to be blameless. And thirdly, you are above reproach. This means you're without accusation. It's, it's someone who the world can't point at and say, ah, but look at that. Oh, but what about this? You live a life that is so tethered to the holiness of God, so connected and rooted in who God is, that there's no hint of evil. There's not a question as to your character. And it reminds us of some of the great truths in Scripture that we read. Because obviously all of you are asking probably the same question. I don't think I'm still, I'm not holy like that. I don't think my life is that blameless. I don't think my life is even above reproach in that kind of way. It's a comfort for us to go back to the words of Paul in a different letter, Romans chapter 7. And many of you know this. In Romans seven twenty four, Paul says these words here, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I think it's 
the same way that you and I would look at these words here and think of the life that we have in Christ and say, man, we do not measure up all the time. And Paul knew that. Paul understood that. And yet in verse 25 of Romans 7, Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he begins chapter 8 with a verse that we all know and all cherish because of how beautiful it is. Then there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means the way to grow in holiness, the way to be blameless, and the way to be above reproach is by trusting in Jesus. This isn't some kind of betterment project. No one's asking you to try harder. No one's asking you to be a better version of yourself. We're asking you to be like him. We're calling you to be like Jesus. There's no wiggle room there. There's no opportunity there to kind of call for gray area. Oftentimes in life, I think we struggle so much with living up to this because we're trying to find loopholes in God's word. We're trying to find loopholes in our own lives. And we're trying to live up to a measure, a standard of righteousness that we came up with that isn't from God's word. The standard you're looking to achieve is Jesus. And when you recognize that, not only does it inspire you to live for him, but it draws you to trust in him. Because all those who are in him have nothing to worry about. Their life now belongs to Christ. And so this holiness, this blamelessness, this life above reproach that is being presented before God the Father is the very life of Jesus himself now lived out in you. That's the Christian in the present. That's who you are called to be. Thirdly here and finally, the Christian's future. Once you didn't know God and you didn't want to. Once you hated God in your mind and in your heart. And when you gave your life to Christ in faith, now you have begun to see that through the redemption and the reconciliation, the restored relationship that he's worked in you uh, through Jesus, the one who is both God and man, you can now walk in his ways. Or as Romans puts it, in newness of life. But read with me verse 23. This is yours if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And of which I, Paul, became a minister. That sets up something pretty tricky for us, right? If indeed you continue in the faith, it seems to, it seems to tell us that there is a way by which you can lose your faith, right? It sets up a pretty big condition here. All of this is true for you if you do this. I think that's how many people try to read this text, but it's not what it says. It's not what it's saying. I think what this text is saying, and in fact, I know what this text is saying, is that those who have faith will prove it over the course of their life. 
that faith will not be moved because all true faith is immovable faith. All real faith is stable faith. All real faith is steadfast faith. Maybe you see it this way. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, verse 24, I thought of looking for an illustration, and then Jesus reminded me that he had a better one. So in Matthew seven twenty-four, we, we read these words from Christ, who describes to us what it's like to build your life upon him. Matthew seven twenty-four. everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a, a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. That word founded there is the same word we see for established in Colossians chapter 1. Now keep reading with me. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and the great was the fall of it. Now, in light of Colossians chapter 1, I think the message for us is this. I think many of us can very much be deceived into thinking we've been building on rock when in truth we've been building on sand. That's the reality that's being pointed out here. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, that's when all these things will be true of you. And the basis of your stability, it isn't upon the house that you're building. It isn't the story of the three little pigs. It isn't whether it's brick, straw, or wood. Its basis is the foundation of your home. That matters more than anything else. And the same is true of you. The basis of your Christian life isn't how good you're doing, it's how good God is. The basis of your Christian life isn't what you bring to the table, it's what God has brought to the table. Jonathan Edwards is famous for saying, The only thing that I've brought to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's us. And so faith is not in us and a faith that's going to live out a life for Christ that's in the way that's described here is a faith that is well-rooted, a faith that is well-founded, a faith that is established, a faith that is grounded, that knows where it stands Where does your faith stand, friend? If you're in this room and you tell me that you're a Christian and I ask you why, is the answer Jesus? If I ask you what is it that makes you feel secure about your faith, is the answer Christ? Is the answer what he's done for you? Is the answer his sacrifice, his atonement? The fact that he isn't dead anymore. He lives. He reigns. He's risen. 
He will come back again for his people. Is your faith built upon that? Are you still struggling to impress everyone else? Is your faith in Christ something that you say with your mouth, but you don't live in your life? Is your faith in Christ something where Jesus is absolutely a bumper sticker to the car, but you're the car? You're actually the thing that everyone should be looking at. Is your faith in Christ something where, sure, I know how to say good things about Jesus, I believe nice things about Jesus, but when it comes to my relationship with God, I depend on what I'm doing and who I am. Friends, may it never be said of you. If that's you, would you repent even in this moment? Turn away from your sin and turn away from your pride. God doesn't need you to save yourself. What God desires for you, he doesn't need your help with. God can do it and God has done it. It is the very reason that Jesus on the cross has said, it is finished. Depend on him. Trust in him. The gospel that you need is the gospel that he gives. Don't make one up for yourself. The world has tried and tried again and they cannot find the answers they're looking for because they don't turn to the only one who's provided it. While the world goes in circles trying to search for an answer as to why we suffer, why we experience sorrow, why we find disappointment, why we do bad things, Jesus has spoken loudly and clearly. There should be no confusing, confusion anymore. The Jesus who is preeminent is also the one who came and gave his life for us. And life in him is sure if we build upon true faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel we heard. And I love this passage because it ends on a note that reminds us of one of the greatest testimonies of all time. They've heard this because it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And they're being written to. This letter is a writing from Paul, a minister of the gospel himself. A man who once was out to hunt the church. Bring it down. Kill the church. Kill its people. And on the road to Damascus, a path that was marked by his desire to stamp out what Christ was doing in the hearts of his people, Paul's life is flipped upside down. Why? Because he came face to face with Jesus. All those who know Christ and understand Christ, their lives will change. And their testimony will look like this. We are not aliens anymore to Christ. We no longer despise him in our minds or show him how much we hate him by our acts. But now we live for him because he's made us right with God. And now our mission, like Paul, is to declare this to the ends of the earth. This is the gospel we believe This is the gospel we need. This is the only gospel there is. Friend, if you're here today and you've never believed upon Jesus, I pray that you would 
now. Stop trying. Stop looking to earn favor from God. God's favor is with Jesus. The sooner you turn to him, the better it is for you. And if you have believed in him and you do love him and you do know him, understand that your faith can never be in anything else but him. Continue steadfast, stable, immovable in the hope of the gospel. A gospel that is all about Jesus. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. May we love you and know that in you and you alone, we are able to be made right with God and we are guaranteed and secured new life and eternal life with him. Thank you for who Christ is. We pray this in his name. Amen.